This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Peter Brown is one of the world's most respected historians. He currently serves as the Philip and Beulah Rollins Professor of History Emeritus at Princeton University. A native of Ireland, Professor Brown taught at Oxford University until 1975 and was a fellow of All Souls College. He joined the Princeton faculty in 1986 after teaching at the University of London and the University of California at Berkeley. He's been the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the Mellon Foundation's Distinguished Achievement Award. Professor Brown is credited with having created an entire field of academic study, referred to as Late Antiquity, covering the years from 250 to 800 A.D. His latest work is Through the Eye of a Needle, Wealth, the Fall of Rome, and the Making of Christianity in the West, 350 to 550 A.D. Professor Brown, when I think of your work, I think, first of all, of the fact that you have basically invented an entire new field of history. Uh, How did you come up with this designation of of late antiquity? I tell you why. I mean, you know, I'm obviously not the only person. I simply used it as a title of a book at a time when it had been used, but it hadn't been, you know, turned into a major concept. I was concerned largely because when we look back at the history of the Christian Church, particularly, it's very easy to see Christianity of the Reformation period, Christianity of the Middle Ages, And obviously, everyone is interested in Christianity in its earliest times, in the times of Jesus, in the times of the Gospels. But then, you know, there was a lot of Christianity in between. And this was a Christianity which, although it was very new in the Roman world, somehow grew out of the Roman world. That is, one would put it this way, the sort of air people breathed. Yes. Even if they were Christians, even if they were very aware that they were living in a time of change, even if many of the more leading ones were heavily committed to bringing about change, nonetheless, just as we modern people breathe the modern air, they breathed an air that was still that of the ancient world. Yes, you have mm-hmm. argued uh, rather convincingly that, uh, that most of us, not only in terms of the popular imagination, but also in terms of scholarship, tend to misread the, uh, the Roman Empire and its fall. Uh, and and your, your work is a massive reconstruction uh, of that history. And uh, I'd love for you to tell the story of how you found your way into that as an historian. Well, I think I found into it from sort of two ways. First of all, I wasn't trained as an ancient historian. My main training wasn't in what we would call the classics. I was much more interested in modern history and in medieval history. 
So I never regarded the Roman Empire as the absolute apex of history, as indeed some people used to. I was much more interested in, as of where, what lay in the future. Yes. That is what began in the Roman Empire, but kept on happening and became part of the medieval world and then was passed on through the Reformation, through the Renaissance, to the modern world. Well, in that so, work, you've spent so much time looking at, uh, at particular figures, such as Aurelius Augustine. And, yeah. and once again, you, you have had such a fruitful and long career as a scholar that you've, you've had the opportunity even to go back and revisit uh, Augustine. C- can you tell oh, us, yeah. of, first of all, Augustine's role and, and how you have reconsidered both Augustine and his role in history? Oh, wow. I mean, uh, in a sense, he's, he's such a large figure that one is always reconsidering him. I think the way one does it, and you know what one's talking about, is the old-fashioned thing that one actually grows older. One hopes that one grows wiser Certainly much more work on Augustine has been done. Very important Augustinian documents, 29 totally new letters, which I did not know when I first wrote, 27 totally new sermons, which we only knew about only 10 years ago. So there was always reason to change one's mind. And I think also as one grows older, there are certain aspects of a person which one was rather blind to. Well, I was amazed in reading your uh, the second edition of Augustine and also how you elaborate many of these same themes in your, your most recent book, mm-hmm. and, and how you demonstrate something about Augustine that is also true of many other figures in history, and in particular in church history. Uh, many years ago, when I was doing my own doctoral work, uh, my uh, my major professor in the area of historical theology, Dr. Timothy George, uh, required me oh, yeah. to do something that I thought was very unusual. He he required me to write a paper on Calvin's doctrinal declarations concerning the providence of God as compared with his pastoral ministry. And, and what, oh, that's yes, a wonderful subject. It was, and it yeah. was a very clever assignment, because what I discovered is that in, for instance, his his theological declarations, Calvin would say such things as, you should never say that God permits anything. A sovereign doesn't permit, he ordains, uh, and he commands. And and yet, in his pastoral ministry, Calvin would do the very same thing he said you should not do. He would say God permitted this awful thing to happen, and it's because it's pastorally necessary, and it's also also true. And you demonstrated that Augustine does more or less the same thing, for instance, on issues of, of, of sexuality. He says incredibly hard things, but then pastorally he makes uh, well, he, he makes a more generous application. Oh, I think that that is absolutely right. And I think if I myself have changed, and you know, just not only myself, but the whole field in scholarship has changed throughout the period, and not only in relation to Augustine, we're much more interested in what the preachers actually said. 
that is we go back to Augustan sermons again and again and again. The new discovered sermons were absolutely wonderful because they were very popular. Uh, he preached one sermon that was two and a half hours long at the height of a major celebration of the pagan Calends in Carthage. You can almost hear the noise off the street. And yet he's both got the earthly touch and has no hesitation about dealing with, you know, what we would have thought were very elevator topics yes. at exactly the same time. I think when people think of Augustine, and for instance, the issue of sexuality, what they recall is his statements on sexuality, for instance, as is found in uh, the, the City of God, in which he makes very clear that, that uh, even within the context of marriage, where he limited, of course, uh, human sexuality, it was uh, to be a matter entirely directed towards procreation, and uh, that it was, it was sin for it to have any other purpose or, uh, or enjoyment. And, and yet, as you demonstrated uh, in his sermons, he, he allowed for the fact that, uh, that married couples ought to be engaged in, uh, in, in, in a life that included sexuality. And furthermore, that, uh, that, that even though it was sin for, for sex ever to have anything other than a procreative purpose, it was not a major sin. I think you're very right there, Doctor. You're absolutely right. And I think it's something we tend to really misunderstand. I mean, I think one of his most remarkable statements, because he himself was somebody who had opted for, for celibacy after a hard struggle. Um, he had very much opted for a rather high view of virginity and celibacy. And yet he said that the Apostle Paul although he had been swept up into the third heaven, also at other times stooped to view the marriage bed. And belonged there. And, yeah, and, had, and was concerned with basically average married couples. One of the things you also point out is something that I think modern people often, even scholars, will will just uh, not think about, uh, lacking a a certain historical self-consciousness. It's because we would judge Augustine over against the the sexual openness of our society. And where you point out, he actually is modifying those who claimed uh, that what Christianity would require is a complete renunciation of sexuality. Uh, Augustine should be seen against that background in which he actually holds a far more uh, holistic and healthy position. Oh, I would certainly, certainly agree with that. And I think one of his real triumphs is that he really could embrace the two options. He himself was part of a very sort of vocal movement, I think. You know, the sheer zeal of some Christians for celibacy, for virginity, was extremely strong at this time. And he belonged to that side in part of him, but he knew that as a conscientious pastor, and also somebody who believed that God's providence extended to everyone, um, he went out of his way to to redress a balance 
which he must have felt in his own self. Well, you demonstrate this uh, with amazing historical detail, but also with, uh, I, I think, what many people would find to be uh, an, an amazing self-consciousness as an historian, and, and especially in the, uh, the appendices uh, that, uh, kind of like uh, Augustine's own retractionis, his retractions, uh, when in the second edition, uh, in a, after a span of decades of studying Augustine and his era, you come back to say, I, I, I think we have to consider the fact that we have been misreading Augustine, and, and I found that a very oh, yes. intellectually courageous act. Well, it was obviously something. One, well, don't forget, Augustine is the best one's best exemplar. He himself was constantly aware that his mind was changing. He wrote his retractation simply so as to actually plot the way in which his mind actually had changed. So in some ways, if I wasn't prepared to change my own mind, I'd be, as it were, not living up to the standard which Augustine had set me. In both the uh, the most recent work, uh, which we're going to discuss through the eye of the needle, wealth, the fall of Rome, and the making of Christianity in the West, uh, and in your work on Augustine, you deal with something I think many of us w- wouldn't even be able to picture, and that is the actual preaching context and method of of, of Augustine. You point out that uh, first of all, in, in ways that do not mark uh, many uh, living bishops or even medieval bishops, uh, bishops in the, in the early church, especially in Augustine's era of late antiquity were preachers first and foremost. First and foremost, absolutely first, first and foremost. And you point out that Augustine, the preacher did not preach from a pulpit. Uh, he did not preach to a calm seated congregation. He preached no, to a mass he preached to a mass of people standing coming yeah. in and out of the marketplace yeah. Yeah, yeah, bringing their yeah, children yeah. and who knows what else yeah, with yeah. them bringing yeah, in yeah. spectators. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell us yeah, about yeah. what that would have looked and sounded like. I oh I would have loved I mean if you gave me a time machine that's one of the place first places I would go to. Um it would be much more like I mean, I think you have to realize that the Romans were used to people speaking in public in front of big crowds in a relatively open place. Every Roman law court was an an, uh, open law court. The Christian churches of this time, you know, that design called a basilica design was very much like what a Roman law court was. That is, the judge would have been at one end and, you know, the the accused, the lawyers, they would have been grouped around them. And then a huge crowd, like sort of great central station almost, a large moving crowd under a sort of high roof. So you've you've got to get a sense that a sermon was truly not a performance from a pulpit, but a real dialogue with the crowd. I could tell you really enjoyed at one point uh, demonstrating an occasion in which Augustine found himself actually on the defensive over against his congregation. I love that. 
I love that. And that came from one of those newly published sermons. We had had no inkling of that previously. You also deal with Augustine the pastor, and uh, I, I think most most contemporary pastors would immediately identify with the kinds of things that Augustine had to deal with without recognizing that when you look at someone like Augustine, he had the same pastoral responsibility. He was dealing oh, with the yeah. same human problems. And oh, yeah. in, in two different places in, in your writings, you, for instance, deal with the fact that he had incredible interest in people. I love the section where you talk about his interest in the homework of a teenage boy. Uh, oh, yeah. The little That's Greek, he called him. extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tell us the story. Well, the story is actually a background of a rather interesting story. Again, it's a story we couldn't have told 20 years ago. It came from one of the newly discovered letters. It's written in almost the last year of Augustine's life. It's written to a very well-to-do Carthaginian who has read a lot of Christianity but hasn't got baptized. His wife has got baptized. He hasn't got baptized. So he's one of these strangely open people. Um, What happened only three years ago is they discovered in an inscription in the Hippodrome of Carthage, his name on one of the reserved seats for the town councillors. So here is is Augustine coming regularly to preach from Hippo to Carthage, which is about a 10-day journey at that time, must have met Firmus, must have given Firmus copies of the City of God, and I think truly and sincerely was interested in Firmus, Firmus's family, Firmus's son, and we suddenly get a glimpse of an influential person who is one of those halfway people. His wife had become a full, full Christian. His son may well have been baptized, He, Firmus, had read a lot. He'd read Augustine's City of God up to Book 10, which is quite a large read. But he still had to be persuaded. And you see Augustine, the pastor, the evangelist, you might even say the the apologist, uh, seeking to convince this man. Very much so. Yes, and and as a sign of pastoral uh, uh, interest, showing interest in his teenage son, and in his yes. schoolwork, because Augustine was the reigning intellectual, and uh, and and oh, thus, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, by, by showing that attention yes. to the man's son, he would uh, he would yes. he would be showing the, the man attention yes. as well. It, it's it's an and incredible I think vignette. That the really lasting the message in that interchange is what he says about the son, which is yes, he can go ahead, he can learn Latin rhetoric, Latin grammar, you know, the old-fashioned curriculum as long as he uses it well, as long as he uses it well. The conversation thus far is pointing to one of my favorite features of Professor Peter Brown's new book, how it reveals far more than the economic realities behind the triumph of the Christian church in the Christian West. 
What he's talking about here within the context of the Roman Empire is also giving us an understanding of someone like Bishop Augustine in terms of his pastoral responsibility. We see a window into the early church, and in particular into this most influential of the church fathers, in a way that no previous work has actually helped us to understand. But we shouldn't be surprised at this. After all, Peter Brown is also the most magisterial biographer of Augustine himself. That's what makes this new book, in so many ways, a continuation of a story he began telling long ago. One of the things that you demonstrate in this latest book, and it is a massive exhibition of scholarship, the title again is Through the Eye of a Needle, Wealth, the Fall of Rome, and the Making of Christianity in the West, 350 to 550 A.D., Professor Brown, it seems to me this is something of the capstone of your work in, in, in defining this era known as late antiquity. Well, you know, a big book isn't always what you first planned. It rather grows upon you. But I, I had felt for a long time, at least 10 years, that this period and these people some of like Augustine, who I've now known for almost 50 years, they sort of needed somebody to actually give them a voice on an important topic. And I think the topic of wealth I chose on purpose because issues of wealth affect everyone. Yes, but I think... Poor because they feel they don't have it, the rich because they do. I think the average person looking at this title would think the book less important than it is. And and the reason for that is I think most of us take economics and wealth as uh, something of merely secular importance. I think that's something that that is the fault, the intellectual fault of many Christians. And yet you really demonstrate that the story of wealth and how the church grew to understand how it would handle wealth is indispensable to demonstrating how the church ended up as the church we know it in the medieval world. Oh, I would certainly say that. Looking back on it, I found myself asking, why wasn't, why hadn't people seen this so much? And I think it was partly Christians themselves to blame at that time, again, as with celibacy and virginity. The people we hear about are usually the more radical. They're the ones with the really extreme solutions. And some of the most passionate Christians and the most articulate Christians were often very wealthy people who had truly, in ways that stunned everyone, thrown away their wealth. That is, they really believe to have followed the command of Christ. If you wish to be perfect, sell all that you have, come. So this is a Christianity whose main stars are very much in that camp. But the more I studied it, the more I felt that the actual heroes and um, heroines were the much more average people who very much, in the way Jews at the same time, considered their wealth 
what wealth they had, and it often wasn't much, a sort of gift from God, and that they had to, as it were, pay back. To renounce one's wealth actually wasn't a way of paying back. It was much more important to see your wealth as, as it were, providentially given to you so that you can do good. So a notion, what we say, you know, nowadays in a rather general way, Christian stewardship actually summed up a whole attitude to wealth, to the world of money, which I think we would gain in um, recapturing. Yes, you know, the the way you lay this out is with such exquisite detail that in a conversation like this, 99% of it is going to be left on the table and just a very small percentage uh, can, can possibly be discussed. But I have to tell you that if I were to summarize your thesis, at least in the central part of the book, I think it would come down to this. And as I was thinking about this conversation, it seems to me that the church had to make a decision about renunciation, the, the renunciation of sexuality and the renunciation of wealth. And as you point out, in many ways, the histories written uh, of the church in the medieval era and beyond really make the heroes and heroines those who renunciated. But you point out that, that Augustine, in a very sophisticated way, a- along with others, really modifies that, because in Augustine's view, yeah. to put it uh, simplistically, you can renunciate once, but you can be a steward for the entirety of your life. I think so, mm-hmm. precisely. So when you look at Augustine on wealth, uh, Augustine seems to have a very sophisticated mm-hmm. economic understanding. He also, as you demonstrate, is a rather agile mind. He, uh, he is moving along with the, uh, the culture around him, and, uh, and of course, it's a, it's a seismically shifting culture. But the church had to come to an understanding that wealth uh, could be and it would have to be used uh, for the glory of God and for the good of people. Uh, as If I read your argument correctly, the, the church began to take on something of the shape of the empire itself, whereas the empire had been made up of cities with a dispersed political power. The, the bishops took on that role, and the churches continued. Yes, very much so. And I think maybe in here, I think it's important to realize that maybe our relative indifference to wealth isn't just a sort of inheritance of a view that, you know, any consistent Christian must renounce wealth, and that therefore Christians who don't renounce wealth are sort of second class. I think we're in an odd way that has continued I think it's also the economy of the Roman Empire was, it was a very agrarian economy, a very slow economy. Wealth didn't consist in large banking concerns. Rich people actually buried their gold, which is why we can see so much in modern museums. Now, this means to say that care of the poor, or just as important, people like yourself who were in danger of becoming poor, was also summed up not in sort of grand gestures of almsgiving, of, you know, huge handouts, but, you know, small gestures, offering low-interest loans, forgivable loans, finding somebody a job, 
so that there's a whole penumbra of Christian charity that is below the sort of radar screen if you're looking only in terms of banking, cash, checks. Yes. And, and of course, you had a church made up of Christians, many of them newly converted from paganism, and as you oh, point out, so. uh, some of them not quite so converted from paganism yeah. as well, try, in terms of their worldview. And, uh, and they're trying to deal with the teachings of Jesus, uh, how difficult yeah. it is for a yes. wealthy person to enter the kingdom of yes. heaven. That's the title yes. of your book, Through the Eye of a Needle. Yes, indeed. Oh, and, yes, yes. and so I read your book, having recently read some, uh, some very perceptive economic history as, as well. And, uh, and even though you didn't, you didn't go in this very direction, you imply it. And that is, Augustine must have come, along with others, to the conclusion also that to renunciate certain wealth is actually to destroy it because the wealth just evaporates and isn't any good to anyone. I think that's what many contemporaries felt. Um, as you probably noticed in one, one incident, which was literally on his back door, that is the great Roman senatorial lady, Melania, yes. he and a few other African bishops intervened, said, you know, um, hold it, buddy. Don't throw it away. Because it would just be destroyed and, and could do it no good. It would just be destroyed. Yes. yes, and Augustine also had a confidence that there were many texts in Scripture that demonstrated how money could be used uh, for, yes. for great good. Precisely, and I think there I think his reading of St. Paul was terribly important. You get a real distinction between the extremists who emphasize, you know, Jesus's true challenge to the wealthy, but very much in the Gospels, and very much in Matthew and Luke. Then there's the letters of St. Paul, which show a fervent fundraiser at work, Yes, show somebody who's determined to be a fully self-supporting member of the community, and at the same time has almost a mystique of mutual help. Uh, Professor Brown, you also point out that wealth itself, and you said this just a moment ago, was something that was developed very slowly in an agrarian context. And, and I want to pull yes. one sentence out of your book, because uh -huh. I think this is one of those sentences that resets our imagination of an era. You write, in the overwhelming majority of cases, wealth was land turned by labor into food, which in the case of the rich was turned into sufficient money to be turned into privilege and power. I, I thought that that formula was so transformative of understanding that wealth wasn't uh, the kind of financial speculation that uh, is on the front pages of our newspapers. It was instead land turned by labor into food. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And of course, when, it, when land becomes food, all the gods are involved. I think one must never under, underestimate what the sheer religious aura of every um, harvest Yes. whether it's Christian, Jewish, or pagan. One of the other very transformative uh, arguments of your book is that as, as these issues are played out in the culture and in what we might call the political life of the bishops trying to figure these things out administratively, there was a theological dimension here as well, and so we shouldn't be surprised that even as uh, Augustine and Pelagius found themselves involved in one of the most formative theological battles of the Church, it had to do with wealth as well. Oh, yes. 
Oh, yes. Because Welts also, I mean, Welts, Welts like a sort of a barium trace. It goes everywhere. And one of the things which Welts does ask always is, how free are humans to actually change themselves and to change society? And there I think Pelagius, because of his extreme view of the freedom of the will, really did think, or at least encourage um, others to think, that, you know, wealth is just a bad habit, and you can get rid of it much as you can, as it were, kick smoking. That's a very and interesting Augustine metaphor. Augustine didn't yes. share that view at all. Well, you rightly point out that Pelagius saw uh, what we would call Orthodox Christianity as as, as lax, as as soft. Uh, oh, yes. As, oh, as yes. he suggested, to say that we need grace is just a, a cop-out, because uh, it oh, just, yes, it yes, just yes. demonstrates a lax commitment. Precisely. And so for uh, for Pelagius, the renunciation of sex and the renunciation of money was one way in which the supposedly absolutely free will could demonstrate its worthiness before a righteous judge. Precisely. Precisely. I wanted to ask, so, so if, if Pelagius had won the argument, going back to the, to the great debate between Augustine and Pelagius, uh-huh. had, had Pelagius won the argument, uh, the history of the, of the Church in terms of its institutional shape would have been radically different. It could well have, it could very well have been, and I'm constantly wondering, <laughs> one of my, this is science fiction side of one, one wonders what it actually would have been like. I think it might have ended up with a much more monastic church. Yes, which by definition renunciates. Which by definition renunciates, and if you're free to do it, um, you do it. Um, It's interesting that we might have a glimpse of that future, and it's only a glimpse, I don't want to put too much on it, in Britain, Wales, and Ireland at this time, where we knew Pelagian ideas continued to, to, to circulate, and which at exactly this time produced a particularly ascetic form of Christianity, where the leaders and the sort of um, the abbots of the great monasteries had much more prestige than the sort of average bishops. When you look at the the entire span of your historical investigation and your scholarship, you really have redefined, in many ways, our understanding of the way the Roman Empire fell and the meaning of its fall. Could you just describe a bit of that? Uh, because th- this, is, this is where you have actually kind of upset the entire uh, marketplace of ideas in terms of, of the world of, of history. Well, I think there are two ways of seeing it. First of all, one must never idealize the Roman Empire. It did great things, but it was still a very fragile state. It was tied by issues of logistics, of agrarian yields. So we're looking at an empire which is almost doomed the moment it actually happens. 
And I think one of the wisest things that Edward Gibbon said, and it isn't one of the things that people usually remember, he said, the fall of Rome was inevitable. What is remarkable is that the empire lasted so mm. long. And I think that's a much more fair way to see it. What I think did happen was that with the rise of Christianity, there was the rise of what one might call a horizontal way of organizing society, interconnection city to city, vertical connections, rich and poor in each city, which it didn't bring the empire down, but when when the empire did fall, for, you know, stra relatively straightforward reasons, it, you know, it couldn't defeat the barbarians, it couldn't bring its taxes in, people found that the end of the empire wasn't as much a disaster. Yes. They so I, yes. I think that the rise of Christianity didn't bring down the empire. If anything, it sort of cushioned the fall. Well, one of the points you make very powerfully in, uh, in, in many of your works is that uh, the fall of Rome as an empire was disastrous for Romans, but not necessarily for those in the rest of the empire. R Rome suffered greatly, but the, the empire in many ways flourished and, and gave birth to what we would call the medieval world and, and Western Christendom. I would, I would think that that would be what happens, because with Western Christendom, you get a world of much smaller political units, which at the same time manages to be enormously creative. I mean, the great Gothic cathedrals of northern France are as grand as any hippodrome, any coliseum. They're built with engineering skills that are quite extraordinary by Roman standards, things Romans never thought of. And yet they're put up in territories which often are no more than a few Departement in France. Yes. How a society managed to grow, managed to become a sort of set of such vivid micro societies, having emerged out of a vast macro society, is one of the great problems. Let me ask you a question about this most recent work, and uh, there, there are so many questions I'd love to ask you about the book, just in terms of its specific content. But reading it, I, I was prompted to want to ask you, what was your greatest surprise in, in the writing of this book? Um, I think the greatest surprise, and it only came upon me gradually, and I can, it came roughly three years before I finally completed it, because until the surprise... Uh, it didn't quite make sense. First of all, the conversion of Constantine, though it made a great difference to the public profile of Christianity, you know, the emperors really did favor it, did give it funding. The conversion of Constantine did not mark the real beginning of Christianity becoming a majority um, religion. 
and the real entry of the truly wealthy into the Christian church happened, oh, two generations after the conversion. And it was an, almost a sort of grassroots movement. So that was a surprise. I think the other surprise was that up until about the year 500, the Christian churches in themselves, that is the actual money available to bishops, was much less than we had previously thought, that the average Christian bishop was still a relatively low-profile person, and that the real strength of the church lay not in its upper echelons, although these were very, you know, very dramatic people, people like Ambrose, people like Augustine, um, but in the sort of average the average Christians whom I came to know more and more through almost accidental evidence, through inscriptions, through little piles of coins found in churches, so that I found that I was writing a history that had its stars, but the stars were not necessarily the real heroes. You have been writing in this field. You pioneered this entire field of history known as late antiquity. You've, you've redefined so many of the terms and reset our understanding. This most recent book is, is massive. It's uh, about 500 pages of text and 200 pages of notes. I, I just have to ask you, knowing that a work like this spawns yet another, what is your area of historical interest in, and research after this book? I think I'd like to, don't forget, this was very much about Western Europe. I'd like to return to the Middle East, that is to the Greek, the Syriac, the Coptic world. In terms of sheer numbers, there were far more Christians in the Middle East at this time than there ever were in the West. And I'd like to do two things, I think. Deal with the finances of the church in the slightly earlier period, that is, from the time of St. Paul onwards, and look at the way in which the rise of Egyptian monasticism, particularly Egyptian monasticism, created an image of the monk as a working person, that is one of the really rather remarkable aspects of Egyptian monasticism, is that the monk was expected, as indeed Paul expected, to work with his hands. Professor Brown, I assure you that when this next book comes out, I want to be first in line to read it. We are, we are all in your debt. As I, as I said at the beginning, I... Uh, I began much of my work in historical theology uh, reading your work on Augustine and then following your arguments, and it is a tremendous honor to speak with you today. Well, I greatly enjoyed it, Doctor. God bless you, sir. most pleasing aspects of the experience of reading a book is discovering that it includes far more than we expect. That's true of any worthy volume, and it is certainly true of this new work by Professor Peter Brown. 
It promises to tell us the story of how the Christian church negotiated some of the most difficult issues related to Christian faith and economics during the time the Roman Empire itself was entering that period of late antiquity and going through its own rather remarkable transformation. And what you also discover is what many people, historians and economists included, would often neglect, and that is the fact that there is an intersection between theology and economics, and that tells at least part of the story of how Christianity triumphed in the Roman Empire. For instance, the issue of how the church would be related to wealth was never merely a pragmatic issue. It was deeply theological, and we owe Peter Brown the analysis of understanding how the distinction between Augustine and the Pelagians in matters of the gospel itself led to two different understandings of the role of the Christian faith when it came to personal wealth and what it meant to renounce materialism. As Augustine made very clear, you could renounce all wealth one time, and then much of it simply disappeared. Or that wealth could be put to the service of the church in what can only be described as a faithful stewardship. The triumph of the Christian church, Peter Brown helps us to understand, its institutional rise and survival through the demise of the Roman Empire was at least partly made possible by the fact that the church could own material goods, that it could indeed collect and become the steward of wealth. And even as we can see that the church sometimes failed in what that responsibility would entail, without taking on that responsibility, the church institutionally could not have survived through these difficult centuries. But the church did survive. And of course, we can be thankful that Augustine's theology survived as well. Behind the telling of a great story, and especially at the hands of a great historian, is a mass not only of patterns and theories, but also of incredible documentation. One of the things I most appreciate about Peter Brown is how much he obviously loves the details, and reading his book is to be immersed in historical details that seem to come alive. You feel like you're there in Carthage as Augustine is preaching in a city not his own, and as he is having to contend with a crowd, a hostile crowd at times, that doesn't like his message. We can all of a sudden understand through his pastoral responsibility, even to a father of a young son, how indeed Augustine was negotiating these issues, trying to find a way to be deeply faithful and a good steward of all that Christ had entrusted to him at the very time that the Roman Empire was itself falling apart. Peter Brown is one of the world's most respected historians. He's been generous with his time to involve himself in this conversation about his new book, my hope is that many evangelical Christians will read this book and then want to know more. We'll turn to Peter Brown's biography of Augustine and begin to learn more about this crucial era in the history of the Christian church, where we understand that the debate, for example, between Augustine and the Pelagians isn't over. These great theological debates are never over, and that's why we have to revisit them from time to time to make certain we know what is actually at stake. What's at stake in terms of reading a book like this is getting everything out of it we possibly can. And that means a book like this one deserves to be read not only once, but read again. Thanks again to Professor Peter Brown for joining me and thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to direct your attention to my new book, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership That Matters. My concern is to develop effective leaders who have more than mere administrative skill, who develop more than just vision. Leaders need to be able to change the hearts and minds of those they lead. In other words, they need to develop the conviction to lead. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.